This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.christchurchsouthphilly.org. That being said, please turn your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah. If you do not have a Bible, we'd love to be able to give one to you. So you can actually just raise your hand. Don't feel awkward about that. We always have people who are raising their hands looking for a Bible. So go ahead, raise your hand up. We will make sure that everyone is able to see what we're, I'm going to be preaching on this morning. Because I'm about to tell you some things that are so good. I want to make sure you know that I am not making them up. As you make your way to the book of Isaiah, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9, so you can look for the big number 9. And we've been in a Christmas series over the past few weeks where we've been looking at some of the key moments of the biblical story that lead up to the great moment of the birth of Jesus. The Christmas story that we celebrate with Jesus being born in Bethlehem does not actually start with Jesus being born in Bethlehem. It's part of a much larger story that God's been talking about since the dawn of time. In Genesis chapter 3, we saw sin enter the world, but immediately upon sin entering the world, we saw a promise given to Adam and Eve that a conqueror of sin and Satan would come who would reverse the curse and bring the freedom that we're meant to live in before the Lord. We've, we've seen how there was a promise that was given to Abraham that blessings would come to, to him and then through him to all the nations. We've seen how there was a prophet that was spoken about who would be a greater prophet than the great prophet Moses. And this prophet would be greater than Moses because he would not just speak on behalf of God. He himself would be God and would be able to lead his people into an even greater deliverance and the joy of an even deeper obedience and we've seen how Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things he is the conqueror of the curse he is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic blessing he is the fulfillment of being the prophet greater than Moses and today we're going to see how Jesus is the fulfillment of a promise given to the Israelite king King David the background of Isaiah chapter 9 is 2nd Samuel chapter 7 verse 12 where God promises the Israelite king David that God will send another king who will come from his line. And this king will establish God's kingdom. God's kingdom, we just did a series on this. It is not a geopolitical entity, nor is something that exists in a particular location. God's kingdom is his righteous, redemptive, harmonious, liberating rule over his people for all time. And so if you're tracking with what we're doing here, the promise to Abraham is known as the Abrahamic covenant. The promise that is given to Moses through the law is known as the Mosaic Covenant. And this promise given to David is known as the Davidic Covenant. Covenant is a Bible word for God's promise that is unbreakable and that he will absolutely keep. And so really this series has been about looking at these various covenants and how they are fulfilled in Jesus. And so today we're going to be looking at the Davidic Covenant and what it means for Jesus to be our king. Now, as we're sitting here in the year 2022 in America, I think it's very hard for us to connect with the idea of a coming king being a good thing. Our country was literally formed in rebellion against the monarchy. And so I think it's actually, uh, uh, we are culturally conditioned to recoil against the idea of anyone ruling over us. But think about it this way. When the Scots needed to be liberated from the oppression of the British, and Mel Gibson, I mean William Wallace, 
shows up on the scene. He galvanizes them to fight for their freedom. But if you know that story, you know that William Wallace knew he could only take the Scots so far. What the Scots really needed to be free was a king to unite the clans. They needed a king to bring them together and to protect them and to work for the good of them. They needed Robert the Bruce. Or you think about the story of Robin Hood, where there are dark days and the Prince John ruled and Robin Hood is able to fight a little bit of a resistance against him, but it isn't until King Richard comes back that all that is wrong is put to right. And those stories, I think, resonate with us deeply. Because don't we all have a desire to be fought for? Don't we all have a desire for someone to come and to take up our cause and to protect us from our enemies? There's a fascinating book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces by a man named Joseph Campbell. And in this book, he explores how every culture throughout time and really throughout the world, they all have, one of the things they have in common is they all have their various hero myths. From Beowulf to Superman, Every culture has hero myths. And he argues that this is because in our human nature, we so often feel weak. We are often very aware of our limitations. And we can feel oppressed by enemies, whether real or perceived, that we can't battle. And so these myths, help, we, we create them to help us live with hope in a scary world. But the question I want to ask this morning is, what if that desire to create hero myths comes from something deeper than a coping mechanism? What if this actually comes from the reality that we are created to be in awe of someone who truly is a hero? What if there is a great hero, a great king, who can truly bring the liberation and the freedom and the safety and the uh, protection that our souls so desperately want? That's what the Davidic covenant, that's what God's promise of the coming king, that's what it provides for us. And in Isaiah chapter 9, we see the kind of hero that this coming king is. The context of Isaiah 9 is that in Isaiah 8, he's, he's talking about how the, the, the people have had a lot of really bad kings that have led them away from God. And as a result, enemies have come and overtaken the Israelite people and oppressed them and enslaved them. And so Isaiah 8 is all about dark days that lead into the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9. I'm going to start reading in verse 2. Our focus will be on verses 6 and 7, but I want you to see the whole prophecy that begins in Isaiah chapter 2. Into this time of darkness, God says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased it's joy. They shall rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer? That God bless the reading and now the preaching of his word. Lord, we come to you. And we have just read your word, given through your servant Isaiah, preserved through us for this moment right here. As God, I pray that you would have your way through your word in our lives, that you would speak to us, Lord God. Lord, I pray that, that somehow through me as your weak servant, you would use my words to help us hear your word and to see what you're saying through this text, that you, Jesus, might be made large in all our hearts that our minds and souls would be filled with you and we leave here rejoicing in who you are. Lord, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that inspired these words to be spoken, he would now come and illuminate these words to our hearts that we might see what you're saying for the good of our souls and the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So in a time of oppression... This prophecy speaks of a coming day when light will break through that darkness and the yoke of their oppressors will be broken. The garments of their enemies will be rolled in blood and burned. The setting here is a battle scene with a clear and decisive victory being won by a child who is born to be a hero king. And so I want us to see three things from this text this morning. We're going to see the hero king's nature then we're going to see the hero king's authority. And then finally, we're going to see the hero king's character. His nature, his authority, and his character. Let's start with the king's nature. We're told two things about the nature of this coming hero king. We're told he is a child who is born. And we're told he is a son who will be given. In saying that he is a child who will be born, this is identifying this coming king as a human. This great king will not be like Superman. He will not be an alien from another planet. What Isaiah is saying here is that your rescuer is going to be like you. He's going to be one of you. He's a child, a human-born baby. He'll be like you, but also he's going to be very different from you because not only is he a child who is born, he is also the son who will be given. In order to give something, that something that you're giving first has to exist. You can't give something away that isn't actually real. I mean, you can, but it's called a scam. And so, like, you get those phone calls, and like, hey, I got a great land property for you in Florida, you know? Like, don't take those calls. Don't give them your checking number. Like, like that land, I promise you, does not actually exist. In order to give something, you first have to have it. It first has to be a real thing. And so giving something means that it exists, and therefore it can be given. And so I love how pastor and theologian Tony Evans says it. By saying a son is given, the prophet shows that the son always has been. The child will be born, but the son has existed from all eternity. See, this child who will be born is the pre-existent son of God who already is and therefore could be given. And so the nature of the king that Isaiah talked about here is that he'll be both man, a child who was born, and he'll be God, the preexistent son, he will be given. Or in other words, in the beginning was the word. 
And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Jesus was born as a child, but make no mistake, He already existed as a son. He is the eternal Word of God who is with God and is Himself God. And so He's the only one who could be both the child who is born and the son who is given. And so the nature of our hero king is He actually has two natures. Let's be very clear on that. Jesus is the only person who has two natures. He is God and He is man. He has two natures, both of which He is fully. Jesus is fully man. The full substance, essential properties of what it means to be a human. He is a child who was born. And he is also fully God. He is the brightness of God the Father's glory of one substance and equal with him. Co-eternal, co-glorious from all time and for all time. And so he is fully man and fully God. And both of his natures are essential to his purpose. As a man, he's the hero king who can represent humanity because he is one of us. In order to represent a people, you need to be a person who's part of those people. right? A senator needs to be from the state they represent. An ambassador needs to be a citizen of the, company they rep- of the country they represent. And so in order for Jesus to represent us, he had to become one of us so that he could then die for us on the cross. He, he came to be one of us so that he could represent us. But he couldn't just be one of us. God's word says in Psalm chapter 49, verses 7 through 9, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. What this is saying is one person can't pay for the life of another. They can't even pay for their own life because they don't have enough funds to do so. Your goods can't make up for your wrongs. God's not a, ju- a, a corrupt judge who can turn a blind eye by you throwing a few nice things up to him. He'll look, overlook all the wrong things we've done. No. No. You, you can try to cut that check, but that check will bounce. No one can pay for their life of sin. And so someone who is a man could do nothing for a debt of death that we owe to God for life of sin. That's all Jesus was. There was nothing he could do. But Jesus is not only a man. He's got two natures. He's the child who was born to represent us, and he's the eternal son who was given so that he could give his eternal life to pay for the eternal judgment that we deserve for our life of sin. Let's be very clear, friends. The cross is not the death of a martyr or a madman. It is the God-man taking our place. And this is why there is salvation only in Jesus. Because only Jesus is a man who can represent humanity and the God who can pay for the sins of humanity. And so praise the Lord that our hero king has two natures. He's the child who's born, and he's the son who is given. Now let's look at our hero king's authority. He's the child who's born and son who's given. And verse 6 goes on to say, and the government should be upon his shoulder. Notice that this says the government, not the governments. This is not speaking about Jesus running for office and getting elected to of various government's positions. No, this is speaking about one world order. One government under Jesus. Now, we hear about, you know, world order, and I think rightly we get freaked out by that. Like, that's Illuminati scary stuff, right? Like, I mean, this is going to get flagged on YouTube probably for me even saying that, right? I mean, a- a- Abraham was right when he said, Abraham Lincoln was right when he said that absolute authority corrupts absolutely. 
you know. And this is the whole idea behind one of my favorite books, uh, trilogies, The Lord of the Rings, right? It's the one idea, the one ring to rule them all, the one ring to bind them. Uh, but the problem is that whoever has that one ring with all the power can't handle that power. They become corrupted by all that power. But friends, our hero king is incorruptible. His human nature can never be corrupted because he also has divine nature and God will never be corrupted. And so in this one world order, in this world that Isaiah is envisioning where there is only one government under Jesus, where all power and authority rests solely on his shoulders, what happens? Well, he rules with justice and righteousness. Verse 7, from this time forth and forevermore. There's total righteousness, meaning everything is right. There's full justice, meaning there's complete equity. Which is why verse 7 starts by saying that as his government increases, there is peace. That's what justice and righteousness bring. They bring peace. The peace that's being talked about here is more than just the cessation of hostility. That's certainly part of it, right? In this, in this government, there's no threats. There's no enemies. There's total cessation of all hostility. But this is more than just the removal of what is bad. This is full thriving in what is good. The word for peace here is the Hebrew word shalom, which more literally means complete and total well-being. And that's what comes in this king's reign. That's what his authority brings. As his rule expands more and more, as indeed it already has come with the coming of Jesus, and it will continue to come until Jesus comes again and establishes his rule fully and finally, once and for all, over all. In Jesus, his kingdom, in living under his authority, there is complete well-being. Talked about this last week, but as we give up whatever things Jesus asks us to give up, he's not asking us to sacrifice. He's not saying do something that is hard. He's saying give away that which is death so that in me you might receive that which is life. Friends, under his rule, under his authority, is righteousness and justice and peace. The very things that I think we're all looking for. And so Jesus, we need to understand when we're talking about authority, he, he's unlike any political authority figure who has ever existed. There's a joke that goes where there's a, a surgeon, an engineer, and a politician. They're all arguing about whose uh, job has existed the longest. So the surgeon says, well, obviously mine. Genesis chapter 2. God took a rib from a man, sewed it back up, made a woman. That's surgery, you know? The engineer goes, no, 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 I've got you beat. Genesis chapter 1, the earth is chaos. And God brings order and structure to it. That's engineering. Politician says, I've got you all beat. Who do you think brought the chaos, you know? Now, I'm not trying to throw any shade at politicians. There are many wonderful politicians who are doing great work that I know personally. But here's what we need to understand. Even the best governments have their issues. But not this government. Not the government. Not the one that this hero king will rule over. In this government, there are no more wars of religion. There's no more threats of enemies. There's no vying for power. There's no politics. There is one who has all authority, and he's the God of love. And so under his authority, there is peace and justice and righteousness reigning forever. And we are invited, even now, to live in this kingdom and under his authority. 
His kingdom will fully come when he returns, but it is already here as we live with faith in him and obedience to him. Let's be very clear on this, friends. Jesus did not come only to forgive us of our sins. We put that in our back pocket and to go live life however we want. He never came asking to be invited into the little place of our hearts. No, he came as a king saying, give to me your life. Surrender your life to me and let me shape you and mold you and teach you and guide you. He didn't come to be invited into our hearts. He came to be Lord over everything about us. He didn't come saying, let me be part of your life. He said, come and surrender your life to me. Now, it's, it's a scary thing to surrender yourself to the authority of another. It's a scary thing. I was involved once in a peaceful surrender program with the police in Camden. Um, I was not having to surrender. Uh, I was helping people to surrender. And so they had this program where clergy could help facilitate bringing in criminals who, in a peaceful way. And so people had done some crimes, and they would come in, they'd talk with the pastor, and the hope would be that the pastor could build trust with them and convince these people to then turn themselves into the police. Uh, I guess they figure the pastors are about as non-threatening as you can get. Like, what are we going to do? You know, throw communion juice at somebody? So, you know, so, so these, these people would come in, and we build trust, and we talk them through stuff and help show them how surrender really was the best option. And building trust in that way proves to be a far more peaceful way to have it than, you know, a cop coming with a gun demanding that someone surrender. There's a lot, a lot better way to do things. And they saw a great success of that program, although I had none personally. Um, but here's what you need to understand. The king has all authority that we need to surrender to. He doesn't come demanding it with violence. He, he comes showing how we can trust him. That's what he does. He comes showing how we can trust him, which is exactly what we see as we continue on. The government should be upon his shoulders, and we don't need to be scared of that. We don't need to be scared of Jesus having all authority. Why? Because here's his character. His name should be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Verse 6 says that his name shall be called. The prophet goes on to list four other names, but each of those names talk about the essential character of this king. They're all part of his name. They're all separate, but they're all part of an integrated whole. Let's, let's look at these and think about these for a second. First, he is a wonderful counselor. There are a lot of counselors in this world. And most of the counselors I know are, are actually pretty good. But every counselor is limited. They might know a lot about you. They'll never know everything about you. You don't know everything about you. They might be able to see some things that are going on in your life but they'll never be able to fully understand your mind and your heart. And here's another reality. In January, I'll have been a pastor for 10 years. And throughout these 10 years, I've done a lot of counseling in various situations. And one thing I've learned is that at the end of the day, if someone's to lie straight to your faith, there's really, faith, there's really not much you can do about that. You never know if you really know someone. Any counselor that we have, as good as they might be, they're in some ways limited because they don't have all knowledge. But Jesus is not limited in that way. This is why he's a wonderful counselor. Wonderful means literally full of wonder. King Jesus provides counsel that is so amazing that just leaves us in wondrous awe. I love how Pastor Alistair Burke says about this word wonderful. He says, as an adjective, wonderful means that which requires God as its explanation. I love that. Jesus is the wonderful counselor because he is the only one who can truly search our minds and our hearts. 
Revelation chapter 2, verse 23. There is no one who ever can or ever will know you like Jesus. And so here's what's really wonderful about that. Jesus knows the depths of who we are. And he still loves us. He knows the depths of who we are. And that doesn't drive him from us, but draws him near in compassionate mercy and love. Just think about the sinful stuff you've done this past week. Just think about the sinful stuff you've thought about doing this past week. If we could record everyone's thoughts and play it on some kind of, I don't know, Instagram reel and showed it on a Sunday. Like anyone showing up, hey, go ahead, roll that film from this past week. I don't think so. But Jesus knows it all. He knows the depths of us. And his knowledge doesn't drive him from us, but instead he came and gave his life for ours out of love. No one knows you like Jesus, and no one loves you like Jesus. And therefore, no one can counsel you like him. He has all knowledge about you. He has all wisdom for you. And he is 100% on your side. So he will use his knowledge and his wisdom for you for your good. So let me say it this way, really simply. Friends, Jesus has all the answers you'll ever need. He has all the answers you'll ever need. And how do we get his counsel? He's the word of God who makes himself known through the words of God. How do we get his counsel? Psalm 119 24 and 25. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. Friends, there's nothing we go through in life from the decisions we have to make to the sorrows we need to process. There's nothing we go through in life where Jesus doesn't have counsel for us through his word. And his counsel is wonderful. The Bible is not given as a set of stories just to be studied. It's given as revelation about God that's meant to lead to transformation in our lives. And so friend, get into this word and study it and read it and meditate upon it. This is why we gather every single week. And the one thing in the Bible that, that God tells pastors to do, he actually tells them, I, I implore you, it, it, before heaven and earth, there's only one thing that, that, that gets charged before heaven and earth. You know what it is? Preach the word. Why? Because the Word of God is what brings us into life with God. That's why we gather every single week, and the highlight of what we do is what's happening right now. And it's not because I'm doing it. No, you can find much better preaching everywhere. But I'm a preacher who needs to be preached to. Like, I need this moment before you do. I preach this sermon to myself before I preach to any of y'all. Why? Because we need the preaching of God's Word. We need God's Word. We need to get this into us so that we might be transformed into the people that God's created us to be. Jesus is our wonderful counselor, friends, who gives us counsel through the word that he's given us in his word. Second, he's not just the mighty, wonderful counselor, he's the mighty God. That word mighty in the Hebrew is actually the word for hero. It's literally saying he, he's the hero God. He's not just powerful, he's powerful for you. He is your hero. And that word mighty actually gets used repeatedly throughout the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Deuteronomy, to speak about how 
God delivered the people of Israel from their slavery in Egypt. And so Deuteronomy chapter 5. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty, same word, hand and an outstretched arm. We saw last week how that deliverance from Egypt was a foreshadowing. A dollar menu sized appetizer of the true feast of salvation that Jesus brings from sin, Satan, and death. He is the mighty God, our hero who rescues us from our own self-destruction. And his deliverance is so powerful that it then transforms our hearts to want to live with obedience. See, Jesus is the hero who saves us and then who empowers us to live like people who are saved. I love how Harry Ironside says it. He says, as the eternal word, he is the revealer of the mind and heart of God come to earth not only to show us the way to the Father, but also to empower us that we may walk in a manner well-pleasing to the One who has redeemed us. See, what this is saying is that God doesn't just give us counsel and then say, go do it. Do your best. Try your hardest. No, He comes, He gives us counsel, and then He gives us, as the mighty God, power to live according to His counsel. You might remember uh, the name... Uh, Nikita Khrushchev was the communist leader of the Soviet Union right after Stalin. He wrote about how um, communism did not do as well as he'd hoped. And the problem, he says, wasn't with the system. This is what he says. The chief failure of communism is its inability to create a new man. See, communism had this ideology of everyone sharing everything equally. But that ideology did not account for the reality of the flawed selfishness of humanity. One of the famous slogans of communism was a new coat for every man. But the problem is people would get in power and then they'd hoard all the coats. And so they could talk about fairness, but they couldn't do anything to change the flawed hearts of humanity that were prone to selfishness. But Jesus comes and he doesn't teach us a new coat for every man. Jesus comes and he says, let me show you how to be a new man in every coat. Jesus changes the person from the inside out. He's the mighty God who saves us. And he's the one who empowers us to live as people who are saved. He's a wonderful counselor who's the mighty God who empowers us to live according to the counsel he provides. Third, he's the everlasting father. Now we need to be careful here. There's a heresy called modalism that we don't want to fall into at this moment. Modalism is the idea that God is one being who takes on various modes. So sometimes he's father, sometimes he's son, sometimes he's Holy Spirit. Like, you know, some kind of divine multiple personality disorder. Um, that's not who God is. God, God, God doesn't place, take place in various modes. No, there's one God who is three persons. One God in three persons. Neither confused with one another, but fully and completely in unity and harmony with each other. There's one God and three persons. And this king, we're very clear, he is the son who is given. Right? This is very clear. This is speaking about the God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. So this isn't referring to the Father as God the Father as a being, but rather the character trait of what it means to be a father. And this is actually common in the Bible, so this shouldn't be too confusing to us. Like Psalm 68, 5 talks about how as a father, God cares for his, help, for his helpless people. In Psalm 103.13, talks about how God is a father, God has compassion for his people. Proverbs 3.12 says, as a father, God instructs his people. It's, it's, not, it's, it's not saying that that's just something God the Father does, not something the whole 
Godhead does together. It's saying that this is, this is basically this is an analogy for what this looks like. I think Stephen Whitmer is right when he says, Everlasting Father indicates that Jesus will care for his people forever as a father cares for his child. It's given an analogy. It's given an analogy. And so really what this is telling us is that Jesus, friends, is not a robotic redeemer. He's not a stoic savior. He's not just doing what he knows he has to do. No, he came for us because he loves us. He came for you because he loves you. He loves you as a father loves and cares for their child. Now, I know as I say that, that in this broken world, that's not everyone's experience with their father. Uh, father wounds are a real thing. One of the most common things that come up actually in counseling. Um, and so connecting love and father is sometimes very hard for some people to do. But whether you've had a great dad, a bad dad, or maybe just a completely absent dad, I hope for a moment that you'll listen to this and just let this truth heal whatever wounds you might be carrying with you. Whatever your experience of your father has been, Jesus does not define his love for you based on what your father failed to do. What this is saying is that Jesus is what a true father is meant to always be. Jesus will never abandon you. Jesus will never run out on you or leave you or be unkind, unfair, demanding, or harsh towards you. No, he will provide, protect, care for, and be present with you forever because he loves you with an everlasting love. That's what it means for him to love you like a father. And so don't allow your bad experiences to corrupt the healing experiences of what God has for you, what it means for Jesus to love you like a father. I, I, I'm a father three times. And I try to be the best dad I can be. I love my kids with all my heart. But I know I'm not perfect. Some of my biggest regrets are actually times where I failed. I've got angry when I shouldn't have been as patient as I should have been. But my hope for my kids is I'm so grateful that they have a one who truly does love them as a father always should. I'm grateful that I have that. I'm grateful that they have that. And I'm grateful that you have that if you put your trust in Jesus. Our hero king, he has fatherly affections for us. He's the everlasting Father, and finally, He is the Prince of Peace. Jesus is the one in whose realm there is shalom. There is complete and full well-being. Psalm 131 gives this beautiful picture of the peace of God being like the contentment of a child that had just been nursed by their mother. A baby who is hungry is frantic and is angry. It's a good thing they can't speak because they'd be cursing us all out in that moment, Right? But a baby that's well-fed, drowsy, you know, sitting there content. What a beautiful and precious picture of peace. That's what God says it's like to rest in his arms. That's what it's like to know his peace. It's full and complete contentment in all of who he is and what he's provided for us. He is the, he is the prince of peace. In him we can be fully content because in him, we have all that we could ever need. There's a store that has a sign which says, if we don't sell it, you don't need it. Now I went into the store, and they didn't have any Eagles gear. So I'm like, you're all a bunch of liars, because you have some things that I need, and you don't have it. Um, but, but the reality is they're wrong, not just because of that, for many reasons. Um, there's many things they, they, they didn't have that we need. But Jesus is the only one whom we can truly say, if he doesn't have it, we don't need it. In him, we might not get everything we want, but friends, we will receive everything we need. 
You feel lonely? Jesus says in Hebrews 13, 15, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You feel weak? Jesus says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my power is made perfect in weakness. You need direction? Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You need comfort? Jesus says in Isaiah chapter 51, 12, I am he who comforts you. Friends, when you sin, Jesus is your Savior. When you fail, Jesus is your rescuer. When you feel trapped by your sin and unable to change, He is your Redeemer. When you don't think you're going to make it, He's your Deliverer who promises to make sure you will make it home to be with Him. Jesus is spiritual water for the thirsty soul. He is righteousness for the unclean. He is strength for the faint. He is holiness for the ungodly. He gives courage to the fearful. He gives cleansing to the shamed. He gives pardon to the guilty. He gives joy to the sorrowful. He is hope for the helpless. He is healing for the hurting. For those who have lost their way, He is the way. For those who are longing to know what is real, He is the truth. And for those who deserve eternal death, He is eternal life. For the cross did not break Him, and the grave could not hold Him, and Satan could not beat Him, and death has been defeated by Him. He's the King, friends, whose love has no limits, and whose grace knows no bounds, and therefore in Him, and only in him is their peace you can go searching for peace in all kinds of things all kinds of experiences all kinds of relationships but there's only one who will actually ever be able to bring you the satisfaction that your soul is seeking Jesus is all we need he is our prince of peace and so as we come to a close as we have now considered some, not all, but some of what it means for Jesus to be our hero king. Here's how we respond to this. Here's our take-home application. Through this text, God is inviting us to stop trying to be our own hero. Our take-home application is not, I'm just going to do better now, I'm going to do more, I'm going to try to be different. No, no, no. Put your cape down, Superman. And put your trust in Jesus. He is the child who is born to represent you. He is the son who is given to pay for you. He is the king who wants to rule over you. He is the counselor who wants to guide you. He is the mighty God who wants to empower you. He is the everlasting father who loves you. And he's the prince of peace who can satisfy you. And so whether it's for the thousandth time or for the first time, come to Jesus. Put your trust in Him. Give your hearts to Him. Surrender your life to Him. He's the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. He's the promised hero king. He is your hero king if you trust Him today. And I pray that you would. Let's bow our heads in prayer.